This week on Hacker in the Fed, Hector and I talk about selling access to an instant messaging service. Bootleg network devices are being sold through certified vendors. Gmail now offers the feature of end-to-end encryption. We're going to talk about the lessons learned from a not-so-secure encrypted messaging application. A cell phone forensic software has been stolen and made public. And a U.S. department has really bad passwords and bad password policies. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hackering the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent working my entire career in cybersecurity and now founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined as always by Hector Monsiger, former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for the large number of systems that he had the skill set to hack into. Now red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert, also friend and podcast co-host. Hector, how are you doing this week? Oh, man, I'm doing all right. It's been busy, super busy. How about yourself? Crazy busy. Cyber is blowing up. Cyber is in the news everywhere this week. It is insane. I know, and it just keeps on coming. Like, there's story after story. Um, there's a lot of great research, a lot of great stories coming out, too. And I'm, I'm hopeful we can touch on some of those today. I think we're going to try to go through as many as we can and we fit in this podcast and, and tell the people really all the stuff that's going on out there. Sounds good to me. Let's do it. Why do you think all these stories are coming out? That's a great question. I'm willing to wager that, uh, you know, towards the end of year, towards the holidays, there's probably two things that are happening. Uh, one, folks are just sitting on research. And then two, you know, people are taking advantage of the holidays. I mean, we're only in the second week of, of January, so I'm sure a lot of this stuff is probably weeks old and it's just coming out now, right? And, uh, you know, when you have holidays or... Any special days, uh, maybe even like Super Bowl weekend. And I have a good story to tell about that one day. Uh, when you have a Super Bowl, a Super Bowl weekend scenario, um, you're going to see either a ton of activity or folks is going completely quiet. I think that's what happened this time around. I'm more of a conspiracist on this one. Jeff Carr has got me worried now. <laughs> you know, now that the, the federal government put $18 billion into cybersecurity this year, you know, I'm worried that this is all this stuff is just to scare the people into to doing these new things. But who knows? Jeff Carr, you, you've gotten a little bug in my brain now about being, uh, <laughs> looking to see what uh, conspiracies are going on out there in, in the cybersecurity community. Yeah, the, the community, the industry. Uh, you know, it's funny that you and I and Jeff spoke about how the media was kind of quiet about uh, Russian cyber operations. And then just this week, I saw a, a, a pretty big post. Uh, regarding the the massive amount of cyber cyber operations coming out of Russia, and I, I read through. I was like, "Wow, okay, well, that's interesting." <laughs> you know, it, it seemed quiet for a while, but apparently the, the Russian actors have been super busy, and we just haven't seen it. Very interesting. Let's dive into these stories, Hector. So then, Hector, you sent me over a tweet that you found interesting that someone had uh, manipulated uh, or uh, some some very well known network routers uh, to try to sell like 
uh, compromised or bootleg machines. Yeah, wasn't that crazy? I mean, I, I know I sent you the post. It was very, um, I would say it's a very obscure post that I sent you. Like, hey, check this out. But yeah, someone had posted on Twitter that they had purchased a number of devices, networking devices. Um, out of curiosity, I'm assuming they opened the devices up and they found a bunch of soldered hardware um, on top of the equipment itself. That right there, that alone is sketchy. I mean, we, you know, when we talk about security, we talk about supply chains, we talk about uh, the different angles where an attacker may get you. Um, supply chain always comes up because it's interesting to me. I'm not sure, Chris, if it's, if it's interesting to you, but if 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 you're buying equipment, whether it's through the vendor directly or through a channel partner, and the equipment comes back modified, um, or even compromise, that's a big problem. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to me. So in this story, supposedly this business bought 70 or so, you know, uh, well-known named switches. Uh, these switches are ranged for anywhere from $2,000 to $5,000 each, you know, not a cheap purchase. And they bought these from a certified gold partner um, through a vendor that, that was certified by the manufacturer. Um, and they took a look inside and, you know, I, I, on these pictures, it's crazy. Like the, the wires are just soldered onto the board. Uh, there's an extra board attached to the thing. You know, my, my first inclination is that, you know, they're doing, using these for malicious purposes in order to, you know, steal network traffic. Yeah, it could be to steal network traffic or even, you know, supply some sort of, uh, or implement rather some sort of passive backdoor. Right. Um, and, you know, that's that's pretty scary, especially when you consider that in, 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 in many cases, an organization probably cannot buy some of this equipment directly from the vendor. They have to go through a partner. And so when you have a partner selling these kind of devices, that's extremely problematic. But here's the thing that, that really bugs me out. I had a great conversation with my friend and he was talking about, well, what if it was targeted? Right. What if what if these devices were meant for like a big business? And this this other organization accidentally bought them, um, or what if a big business had these devices on their network? They they kind of sold them or, moved, or passed them along. Um, the partner got these devices to refurbish them, and now like SMBs, smaller businesses are you know getting good deals on them, and bam, they're backdoored. I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm curious as to what that um, that extra board was, what it did. But I'm not sure we'll find out anytime soon. Well, there's a few ideas about it. Uh, you know, I, I, there's a connected uh, paper from F-Secure that did a whole thing. And, and uh, the company that manufactured the original equipment uh, has put some stuff out there saying that this is a device that was attached to the board to bypass that company's security features. There's both software and hardware, you know, uh, boot restrictions uh, on the device. And this device had figured out a way of bypassing those secure boot restrictions, so allowing um, the devices to be sold past the end of life, so they could be used uh, on the network and it would communicate back. Um, but like, let me go back and, and, and I, I wish our listeners could see these pictures. Um, you know, I'm sure they're out there if you, you want to look for them. But that you know, it's it's really really obvious with these wires hanging off the board and glue, and the wires are just glued down to the board. How often do you prescribe to your clients that they physically check their machines uh, when they buy new equipment? Would they actually take it apart and start looking through on boards and, and things like that? Yeah, well, this this conversation comes up, especially when, you know, clients are asking me about, uh, oh, I'll give you a great example. 
uh, during the you know COVID experience, right? When when folks started working remotely and organizations started sending laptops out, um, or and or purchasing laptops in bulk, devices, Chromebooks, etc. You know that was part of the conversation. Well, Hector, what, is, what are some of the threats that you know we could face if we start? Let's say we we purchase fifteen hundred laptops, we send them out. Um, you know, we'll put our technical controls on it. We'll we'll connect it to uh, some sort of centralized service. Yada yada yada. And so, one of my questions would be: Well, uh, have you actually inspected these devices? Um, no, usually not, because a lot of these organizations are trusting their partners. They're trusting their vendors. Uh, and more often than not, they'll purchase it from a big name vendor who probably has or has not done any vetting, and they're just plug and play into corporate networks. Uh, just imagine if a rogue state, you know, rogue government, you know, could predict a COVID scenario, and uh, a large part of the planet started to work remotely. If they if they were able to compromise some sort of supply chain, they would get tons and tons of hits you know, pretty easily. Predict a pandemic or cause a pandemic? Now you're right. starting to sound like oh. a conspiracist. Right. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm, not going, I'm not going in that direction, okay? I'm just saying if they have some heads up on, on maybe uh, some, some future shutdowns um, and, they're comp- and, they, and they have access to, to compromise uh, a, some sort of supply chain route, then yeah, that would, it would be an, a great opportunity to start compromising devices you know, and, and doing what they need to do. I don't even think they need a heads up. Just wait for something crazy to happen. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But if you have the pieces in place, you know, it, it's great to have. Oh, yeah. You know, that's actually great. That, that makes for a great movie. I mean, to be honest with you. But yeah, no, this is uh, it's fascinating stuff. And I'll be honest with you, even even I like, uh, you know, I'll purchase a, a device and and, you know, I may not even open it and check it out, you know. But then again, I'm not really working with anything too sensitive on my end. Yeah. So it, it really, this story makes me think that's, that's the good thing about this story is that it, it, it puts some perspective into your mind that uh, maybe we need to, you know, kind of look at the hardware that we're using and, uh, and not just, not just kind of be, you know, have our blinders on and think that, you know, we can only be compromised over the internet or compromised because of a weak password or compromised because of a misconfiguration. It goes beyond that as well. Oh, now you're scaring people. People are going to be cracking open their their keyboards now. How <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, do you go with that? Do you open up your keyboard? Do you open up your mouse? Like, uh, you know, the, a mouse is a great place to put a listening device. Hey, listen, you're giving ideas now. Be careful <laughs> with that, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's already powered. It's always plugged in whenever the computer's on. Um, you know, just put it simply in there, you know. Yeah, I mean, or, or or if you're if you're like an OEM laptop manufacturer, you could just open up the uh, the webcam device and and put in a, a passive back door there to just kind of listen. Yeah, um, you know how often are people actually really in, in, you know investigating their uh, webcams or like you said, your mouse, the mice. Um, you know, yeah. So it, it's 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 scary, and it's usually probably beyond most people's scopes. I think this is why um, there's some companies out there that are trying to produce laptops and devices that you could build and take apart on the whim, you know, on a whim or on the fly, you know, like framework framework is a good example. And there's a couple other companies that are trying to sell devices that you can just take apart whenever you want. Um, and, and, and many of the hardware and, and firmware and some other components are open source too. Well, you know, some folks are trying to deal with this problem, but to be honest with you, I think this is a, uh, is much more complex than the password problem that we have. Mom Tarbell just threw her laptop out the back door. Sorry, Mom. 
<laughs> oh, man. Not good. So next story. Turn this Gmail security feature on ASAP. Uh, they're telling us that something new has come out on, on Gmail for all of us Gmail users. Uh, want, we should turn this on immediately. New Gmail end-to-end encryption service is going to go live January 20th. So uh, probably right around when this story, when this podcast goes out, is this new feature. Uh, what's this going to do for us, Hector? Yeah, no, this is great. I mean, I, I, um, I started the process of implementing this on my own um, domain. It would require that you have a domain hosted with Google Workspace. Um, but not only that, you would have to have like a business account. And for some of you uh, folks listening that you, you may be an administrator at a educational or academic organization, you may be able to enable this as well. What is it? What does end-to-end encryption on, a, on an email service do for our listeners? Yeah, no. Well, so, you know, what Gmail is offering is the capability to be able to send encrypted email between yourself as a user and other users on the platform. Um, I'm not sure if it works externally beyond Gmail, but if I'm assuming that, you know, right off the bat, if two Gmail users email each other using this feature, they would have technically end-to-end encryption um, kind of taking care of their messages. Think about it like this. So some of you folks may not know this, but, you know, 99% of the email out there that goes out, um, and, and maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, um, is plain text, right? It goes out in plain text, just like your SMS text messages. If you were to send an email over to Chris, it was something sensitive. Unless you encrypt the email contents itself, the email is going to transfer over the wire in plain text, and anyone between you and Chris, and that includes your mail exchange, that includes your ISP, his ISP, any hops, any data, center, data centers uh, between you guys will be able to read the messages. Okay. Well, I'll correct you one point there. So Gmail does already have the transit layer encryption if, if you turn that on. So anything Gmail to Gmail goes encrypted across the wire. Now it does sit on the Gmail servers, you know, or, you know, on your device unencrypted. Yeah. So that, that's a great point, right? So let's clarify here. So if you email a user, uh, if you're a Gmail user and you send the email to another Gmail user, yes, you will have that encrypted transport. The email stays within the, the Google ecosystem, right? Well, it still means that a Google employee could probably go through their mail servers and read the email. That's assuming that that's how it works. Now, if you were to send an email from a Gmail account over to an external uh, service, that's going to happen over SMTP. And that will be plain text, right? Anyone Correct. can read that between the Gmail user and that endpoint. Or that 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 destination mail exchange, um, but in this case, uh, you know, it seems like you know you'll be able to send an email, um, you know, from your from your account to another account, and then you guys will have your own special codes or special encryption keys to encrypt and decrypt the emails. I think the only thing that won't be encrypted will be the headers because the headers will be needed for uh, transport, for all sorts of different things. And so just for the listeners, the headers of an email are the to, from, that sort of information. Think of it like a, a letter in the in the mail. So the outside of the envelope, anything you see on the outside of the envelope, you know, where it was sent from, that stamp from the post office, the return address, 
the to address, that, that can't be encrypted. You need that to be able to get from mailbox to mailbox. So that's what Hector means by the headers won't be encrypted. So Hector, from the law enforcement point of view, Google's not going to, Google servers aren't going to have access to any of the, the encryption keys or the decrypted email. So uh, from uh, if I wanted to, when I was in the FBI, if I wanted to get a search warrant of a encrypted Gmail account, Google can't do anything for me. That's going to be a big change for me on the hacker side of things. Uh, end-to-end encryption, what does that do for you? Yeah, well, I mean, look, it would allow for command and control to take place. Um, you know, since Gmail and Gmail servers and IPs are usually whitelisted on most firewalls, theoretically an attacker could create a, a you know a payload that would use Gmail accounts to, to exfiltrate and or uh, maybe run and execute or queue commands uh, between emails. You could have a command and control scenario where your binary logs into an email uh, account on Gmail, sends some information over the wire or over uh, end-to-end, you know, uh, uh, a service here or the feature. The listener will expect that email, open it, and you know the cool thing about it is that even if maybe an investigation takes place. Uh, nobody would actually would see what the content, uh, what was exfiltrated, rather. So yeah, it, it's 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 definitely usable for black hat purposes. But if you are a privacy advocate, you would be very happy. I am. I, I'm I'm a big fan and proponent of of end to end encryption, and um, I'm excited to see this in, uh, in in motion. So I will say that the one saving grace, and and this isn't you know the the end all, but but for the command and control stuff that Hector alluded to. Google does a, a pretty good job about not allowing you to create a Gmail account with a, with a pretty good phone number. They 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 really lock kind of lock that down. Now I know there's ways around it, but for the for the low level hackers that you know that that's going to help stop them, you know, setting up too many Gmail accounts with with a with a bad phone number to to use it that way. Um, one thing I found doing a little research on this for the listeners is uh, that Gmail already has what's called a, a confidentiality mode. And, and that sets uh, an expiration date for messages or allows you to revoke access at any times. Uh, so this is something you guys might want to go into your settings on your Gmail account and look at. Um, so if you needed to send somebody some you know sensitive information, uh, like a bank account number or anything that you didn't want them to have after you know 24 hours or 48 hours, uh, you can go in and, and, and send a, a Gmail uh, through this confidential mode. Now, I will say it doesn't prevent the person on the other end from taking a screenshot, uh, but it, it doesn't leave it sitting in their inbox. Um, so if you sent the information, you don't, they don't want, you don't want them to have it. Maybe they're hacked, you know, a year later, you don't want that information just sitting in their, their mailbox. Um, you know, Gmail does offer that. So I would, I would take a look at that and try to use that. Oh yeah. Confidential mode is, is, is pretty dope. The idea that, you know, if you send an email in confidence to somebody, they can't forward it, copy it, download it, print, or anything like that. I mean, you can still take screenshots, you can do things like that, but you know, it, it's it's definitely a solid move forward. For those folks out there that uh, are in data loss prevention or DLP, you would welcome more of, of more of these features. I know other service providers have like DLP stuff or features available already, uh, but it's good to see that Google's kind of working in that direction. I mean, big shout out to them. So, Hector, another story you sent me was that a very popular uh, encrypted messaging app uh, that has over 10 million users, and those users include the Swiss government, the Swiss army, and the chancellor of Germany, they found a number of uh, seven different attacks 
that could possibly be found to to break uh, this secure communication. Uh, pretty interesting to read. A little nerdy if we want to nerd out for one quick story. What'd you get from this one? Yeah. So look, a big, I would say, a big selling point for any uh, communications app, application, platform, protocol, whatever it is you want to call it, is one, is it secure? Two, is it private? Okay. So if, if you're downloading an app that sells itself as a secure privacy-centric application, you're expecting that to be the case. Um, but in this case, you know, some researchers had identified that there were quite a few uh, vulnerabilities that could be leveraged by an adversary, most of which were cryptographic, which, again, is one of those things where one of those areas that's usually beyond the scope of most people, including myself, you know, when you get into cryptography, you have to have uh, a pretty good understanding of not only, you know, the, the, the science itself, you have to have a great understanding of, of you know, other factors. What, what makes something cryptographically insecure? And, of course, how do you exploit that? How do you, you know, utilize it in an, in, in, in an attack? And then, of course, finally, for, for someone like me that has to speak to a client and discuss these kind of issues, how do you actually mitigate these attacks, right? So I will say, not, not to jump to the end of the story first, but uh, the researchers did not publish this story without first going to the company and telling them about these flaws. Uh, and they have been able to fix it and change the way cryptography is used in their system to supposedly be better now. Now, I'm not sure if it's been, been tested since then, uh, but you know they they have fixed these these uh, problems that were pointed out prior to the publication of the article. Oh yeah, well you know in in this application itself, it's it's funny because I have I have a story with it. Um, there was a point where you know I had met with a few celebrities and mostly in the music industry, and they were using this app. And so the, the obvious question to me because I'm the security nerd at the table is, uh, is it secure? And, you know, I had to give them the, well, it's, it's a complex question. Well, it, it, it might be an easy question to ask, but it has a complex answer. We could, we could be here for the next, you know, three years talking about it. Um, but, yeah, no, it's uh, the one thing I tell, I tell folks all the time is if you're going to use an application because it claims to be secure or private, um, you have to be aware that you're using someone else's servers. That's one. Um, using someone else's technology, that's two. And so you, you can only trust it. As, as far as you trust this, you know, these other people, these the engineers, these developers. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've always come to the point that if I need to speak to someone privately, securely, more than likely it's best to do it face-to-face. Face. Now, the cool thing about this, uh, Chris, is that some of the vulnerabilities that were identified so far um, really relied on uh, some sort of physical access or access to a network. There's some man-in-the-middle attacks here, or there may be a, a requirements to get access not only to the phone, get access to the user, or get access to some sort of network where that device, uh, where the device is that's running the app, it's on. So yes, it's not a. We're not talking about like a remote command execution. We're not talking about a vulnerability where an attacker could send you a a, a text message with with a you know a, a malicious link. It's 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 a bit more uh, nuanced than that for sure. Yeah, many of the attacks, uh, the majority of the attacks were, were accessing, you know, a, a key, one of the keys, a portion of the keys, um, you know, anywhere from cloning the phone um, all the way down to, you know, compromising what they call the uh, the vouch box, which, you know, stores the encryption key and the long-term key. 
uh, and, and it's a way of tricking the user into sending it more of a social engineering hack than a you know a, a technical hack so so yeah it's not as uh you know we're not we're just popping phones from a distance like we've talked about in in uh in past episodes of hacker in the fed oh yeah no <laughs> Definitely, definitely not that, but still pretty scary. I mean, look, there's a lot of folks out there that require a certain level of privacy, right? We have journalists, you have researchers, you have uh, folks in governments, right? Uh, and you can even argue celebrities and so on. But the truth of the matter is, is uh, that you know when you're dealing with technology written by other people, you should always have have it in the back of your head. Well, there might be a potential for compromise here. Um, so always be aware of what it is that you, you're kind of sharing with people, right? I mean, that's that's always my suggestion or recommendation of folks is to be aware, right? Awareness helps. And being proactive about your measures, making, for, making sure your phone is updated, making sure that firmware, services, software, anything you need to do to make sure your, your device is updated, definitely do that. There's always going to be a possibility that the software that you're using may be compromised, compromisable. Uh, or may have vulnerabilities. And that's something you need to add into like your risk assessment or risk management, really. And, and for those listeners that are, happen to be app developers, I think we're talking to a smaller crowd there. You know, some yeah. of the lessons learned here by these guys and what they put out there was, you know, use modern secure libraries, be aware of cross-product uh, interaction, or sorry, uh, use modern secure libraries, be aware of cross-protocol interactions, uh, and proactive, not reactive security. You know, uh, that last one really can go for everybody. You know, proactive with your security. Be ahead of things. Um, if, if we're just reacting, it's too late. You've lost your data. Good lessons for those app developers out there. You know what? And you're right. The last point applies to every, you know, every industry, every security program, and even personal security, right? You, you don't want to be in a scenario where someone compromises you first, and then you have to deal with mitigation. No. You want to be able to try to, you know, grab the issue or, or grab the potential concerns um, by the horn and, and kind of deal with that sooner than later. This is why we always kind of like promote uh, making sure your credentials are rotated, making sure your accounts are, are set up properly, making sure that you have MFA or, or uh, you know, some other some other mitigation in place prior to a compromise, right? You know, when you look at scenarios where people have been compromised, um, I mean, great example. There's been some stories recently of, uh, you know, of folks being compromised and having their wallets drained, their cryptographic wallets, their cryptocurrency wallets drained. Um, and they're like, well, how did that happen? Well, I mean, depending on the scenario, depending on the story, you'll find out that there's some sort of misplay. There's some sort of misconfiguration on behalf of the of the target, of the victim, rather. You know, yeah, they, they, they had physical crypto devices. They had all strong passwords. They had all these cool things. But they had all their backup codes on, on an iCloud or a Google Drive or a box. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, you're trying to be convenient with, with how you deal with your backup codes, but now you've expanded your attack surface. So, yes, being proactive is definitely important. And uh, Chris, thanks for bringing that up. So big news in the world of uh, cell phone forensics. Two of the the biggest uh, cell phone forensics companies. Uh, these are companies that that you know make devices that allow you know law enforcement or uh, industry to you know 
get into the files on someone's phone or get get data off of it. Uh, they get, they suffered a big breach this week. Yeah, I saw that. That's pretty bizarre. I, I haven't worked with this with this software myself, but I, you know, I'm sure you have at some point. Yeah, I've worked with both of them, and so really, you know, I, you say it's bizarre. I don't think it's bizarre. You know, so on a past episode, we've talked about the NSO group, and, and there was a lot of public outrage about how that software. Um, and for those that didn't listen to the episode, well, first, shame on you. Uh, but second of all, you know, you know, it was a, a series of O days that was able allowed people to have a zero click, zero click infiltration into someone's phone to get their information, and it was used to go after journalists, and you know, people were killed over it or killed, you know, as a result of using it. Um, a lot of stories out there about that. So I, I would guess that you know, cell phone and, and cell phone forensics type firms would have been targeted ever since then because of the public outrage because of uh, you know you see things like that yeah at least one of the copies here have been leaked before as well they've they've definitely been targeted quite a few times uh by hacktivists or maybe even even partners right folks that have access to their software kind of just uploading dumps and archives online for others to see um i think what's always fascinating or interesting to people especially researchers is the kind of devices that these products are able to to kind of use, utilize uh, during a forensics, um, you know, operation. Are there are there specific techniques that that uh, are leveraged, uh, including exploits, vulnerabilities? Uh, are they using some sort of zero day in Apple or Android products? And so every time these leaks happen, you have folks uh, immediately kind of going through the data looking for such techniques, and then, of course, publicizing what those techniques are. The expectation is that Apple or, or Google would try to patch those um, those uh, attack paths sooner than later. Well, I mean, we say that, but, uh, you know, th- these are devices that, you know, legitimate companies can purchase, law enforcement can purchase, you know, um, you know, I, I, we, I've had these outside of the government, you know, you, you have to do it to, to a forensic. So, so I would say, you know, Apple and Google and all the cell phone device people, they can purchase this and test their own their their own equipment against it. You know, it's not like something they, they could do. But it, it like you said, it's not not everybody could just buy this. You have to have legitimate reasons to have it. So, you know, are hackers going through this in order to find ways of utilizing this software? Are they trying to find ways to make their application so that this software can't be found i mean one of that that's one of the big uh, things on cell phone forensics these days is that certain apps like the messages can't be extracted from the phone there, there's no really really good way of doing it and and from these leaks i could see where these apps would would learn how these devices work and try to block the you know the messages being extracted or the data be, being extracted would a ha- how would a hacker use this information? Yeah, I mean, those are all great points. Think about it from like Cellbrite's perspective, right? So they, they're spending a ton of money on research and development. Whether they purchase or identify uh, vulnerabilities or methods, right? It doesn't have to be an exploit per se. It could be just a, a set of steps that would allow uh, per- perhaps the automation of extracting information from an app. Um, maybe it's a process. So if a black cat or a bad actor or even a researcher is looking through this data set, uh, what they're looking for is those techniques. Now, the question is why? One, to identify any potential exploits or vulnerabilities, right? That's, that's, that's probably pri- the primary reason. Um, but the second would be, well, how can we create 
uh, an app that's secure against the techniques that are used by these products. So yes, they will look for you know p- potential oversights on behalf of these companies. They will look for ways to kind of circumvent you know the the tools themselves, uh, even shut them down using anti debugging tricks or other mechanisms that may make the application crash. Now imagine this scenario. Imagine you are a bad actor. You create an application, maybe a malware, and using this information here from this leak, you've identified a vulnerability in the Cellbrite software itself. So imagine a scenario where uh, the bad actor creates the payload, the payload exploits Cellbrite, and then either you know compromises the operator or wipes the operator's computer or wipes the device because it's identified it's being you know um, you know that's going through a forensic process, right? That's realistic to me. And that's what I would think that an actor would look for. Let me ask you something about, um, you know, these large. So the data sets were stolen. There were 1.7 terabytes and 103 gigabytes from a from a hacker's point of view. And, and I've asked you this a couple of times in this conversation. How do you move 1.7 terabytes uh, when you get into a system like that? One, how do you keep from being noticed that you've moved 1.7 terabytes from their network, and two, how do you do it, and where do you put it? <laughs> That's a, these are all great questions, right? So, let's look at it from different angles. Assuming that this is well, let's assume first that this is a whistleblower. I mean, that that's kind of what that's what the indicators are, right? From from the research that's come out, the information that, that has come out, um, these leaks came from an anonymous whistleblower. Okay, so let's go with that one. Right, so let's go. With, let's go. Let's go with that one. So, you have an anonymous whistleblower with physical access to this data. It's a matter of just putting a USB stick into the drive. Not a stick for one point seven terabytes. Well, the the idea is that there's several sticks. Let's put another scenario up in the air. Let's say that this data was hosted on some sort of cloud service, and that cloud service is is uh, you know it's something that's third party. It's third party run, so you don't have. Uh, logs on the back end. You don't have alerts in the back end. If someone is able to compromise that cloud dump, that cloud drive, they would be able to download it pretty easily. You know, unless there's a, some sort of alerts in place, depending on the service, the the victim, the company, may not never even know or hear that such a download even took place. And then, of course, the final scenario I'll give you is, well, what if someone compromised the internal network for any of these products, these vendors rather, to exfiltrate that, that amount of data, you can use a service like Mega, you can use a hack service, you can use a VPN, uh, a VPS, sorry, a virtual private server that you could rent online from any country, from any service using cryptocurrency. Now, the, the indicator of compromise here would more than likely be found on the, uh, the, the networking team, the network engineering team, or, or even the folks that are watching firewall logs, right? If you have a socket place, let's say you're a business and you have a security operations center or similar, um, you have some sort of service like Splunk or a SIM or anything that actually looks at traffic or looks at logs, then you may have that indicator somewhere in there, okay? Uh, 1.7 terabytes is a lot of data to transfer. And usually, especially if you have a next-gen next firewall or uh, or anything similar to it, you should get some sort of alert, some sort of message that, hey, there's a big transfer taking place. You should probably look at this, right? But unfortunately, from what I've seen, my personal experience, and I've dealt with clients from all different angles, 
of different maturity levels. In many, in many cases, they just don't have the resources to watch for this. Then that's just a that's just the reality of of what we're dealing with today. So they they say the leak included uh, a full suite of all the programs uh, from the, these two companies, uh, technical guides and files. Uh, that were used for the software. But then it also said it included customer documents that were part of the archive, and they were dated from November 19th to December 3rd. If you're hacking into something or an insider or whoever you're going to be, why would you leave that clue to the investigators of that? those five? You know, we're talking about, what is it, uh, the 15 days. It's a 15-day period. So you know what happened in that period. Uh, what, what's the benefit of that? Well, I have no idea why the bad actor would leave that kind of metadata there. Maybe they couldn't they couldn't modify that, right? Maybe that's something they couldn't change, or maybe they did. Maybe they had data all the way until December twenty fourth, and, and data that starts going back to twenty twenty one. The reality is is that uh, uh, we really don't know, and for us to speculate would would uh, you know it would compromise our interests if we have researchers, right? We don't want to sit here and speculate as to what this means. Oh, come on. I'm an investigator. The, the specific dates like that, that, that intrigues me. Yeah, that intrigues you, but it, it's, it's not concrete. You know that. Uh, you know, the reality is that the these files could have came in folders. There could have been a 2020 and 2021 folder in there. The actor must, you know, he could have said, well, or they could have said, uh, well, I hacked the company in 2020. I don't want them to know that, so I'm just going to delete these folders and just leave us with the 2022 archives, right? You know, there's a lot of angles to it. Now, as an investigator, you're right. It might be very interesting to you because now it gives you some sort of timeline to work with. That's certainly going to be my first pass to look for 1.7 terabytes of data moving somewhere across the network. Let's look in those 15 days to start. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. But you also look at, you know, we're talking about December 2022. There's a lot of people going on vacation. There's a lot of people kind of breaking off and and taking time off, right? Um, They're out of office. Um, starting that that first week of December and the, moving into the second week of December, it, it's just one of those situations where they, it's just perfect timing, and it's possible that because of that perfect timing or that that coincidental timing, uh, we have you know this kind of leak that took place. I mean, it, it's it's interesting stuff. I love to think about this the, these kind of scenarios because I always wonder what was what was going through the attacker's mind as they were kind of doing it. So, I mean, I don't know if we've ever talked about it in this podcast, and it'd be interesting, you know, for our listeners to know this. A lot of attacks happen on right before a big weekend. Um, if it's Super Bowl weekend, it'll happen on Friday. If it's a long weekend, it'll happen, you know, right before the the long weekend starts. It'll happen, you know. The, the hackers will kind of uh, time it so that the response is when the least number of people are there, the least response can happen. Did you ever do that in any of your attacks? Was time uh, a part of it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I definitely took advantage of holidays. There's just some cool stories that I have where I would specifically wait for Super Bowl weekend. And, um, you know, one of these days, we should definitely go into at least one of those stories, for sure. That sounds like a, a great episode. Well, a uh, future episode of Hacker in the Fed, we'll talk about timing of a hack. Oh, yeah, let's do it. I, I have a great story that might be uh, very interesting to the audience. Perfect. Uh, keep them listening, Hector. 
So another big story came out this week, uh, hacking in the news. So uh, the inspector, the Office of the Inspector General uh, inspected the U.S. Department of Interior's password complexity requirements. Um, and I'll tell you, it's big news because they didn't do so well. Ouch. That's not good. Spoiler alert at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the numbers are really interesting, Hector. And, and I know you and I have joked before that this podcast just becomes a change your password, change your password every 30 days, password, password, password. Blech. But l- let's look at some of the numbers. And th- this was a, a government agency and they've you know been inspected before, um, you know, this comes uh this plays heavy on my heart because I was the victim of a major US government hack when OPM or the Office of Personal Management was hacked into that's the organization that stored all the information about me when I became an FBI agent you know my background information uh how many push-ups I could do information about my children uh anything any little detail about my life was sitting in a file right there. And because of a contractor account that was not disabled, they got hacked into it and, and lost a lot of information about people that hold class, classified clearances uh, in the U.S. government. So now we have another problem at another agency within the government. And so they, they found that employees used passwords that were known to uh, on breached password lists. So out on the dark web, there's lists of passwords um, and stuff that's been stolen. Uh, that, that should be something a, a sysadmin can go through and kind of uh, force password changes and, and not allow those passwords to be used again, right? Yeah, so that's a great question. That is a great question that doesn't have too many good answers, okay? Um, you could specify... Um, some pretty decent or hard password requirements, especially when you're like you're configuring Active Directory in a Windows environment. Yeah, you could you could set arbitrary requirements, but then the problem is is that when you're when you're allowing folks to kind of generate their own passwords, even if you say okay, I want eight characters, the first letter has to be capital, um, and then we need four numbers and a meta character, right? Uh, you're going to end up with password one two three four, you know, exclamation mark. That's right? that's funny. Uh, password one two three four was the most used passwords in the Department of Interior, uh, with 478 active accounts using that password. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's absolutely insane. And so, okay, you say you say, okay, well, I'm going to set a harder requirement. I am going to set a requirement that's going to require, um, you know. 50 characters and it it could be all lowercase. It doesn't matter because 50 characters using a strong cryptographic uh, hashing algorithm should still take an adversary a long time to crack. But here's the next problem. The users will then say, well, 50 characters. They will use their, their most favorite line from the Bible. They will use their favorite line from a song. And guess what? There are word lists with Bible passages, and they're wordless with song lyrics. Um, they're they're wordless with famous quotes. And these accounts still get cracked, right? It, it is definitely a problem. And even looking at the data, we're looking at, at one engagement here where they targeted 85,944 hashes. And about 21% of those were cracked, 288 of which were elevated privileged users. Um, we're talking about domain admin, enterprise admin, forest admin accounts, uh, accounts that might have access to the schema group or some other group that may allow uh, privileged access. Even more than that, we're senior U.S. government employees. You know, it becomes a problem. That's why, you know, we always talk about the password issue. We kind of joke about it a lot, like you said earlier. 
But, you know, the reality is that password complexity requirements tend to be outdated and or ineffective, regardless of how hard you specify these these requirements. Yeah, it was just strange to me reading through the report, you know, nearly 5% of the accounts had the word password in their password. Um, five of the five of the 10 most commonly used ones had a variation of password combined with one, two, three, four. And, you know, they, they did all these cracking in the first 90 minutes, 16% of all the passwords were cracked. That's crazy to me. Uh, you know, the, the, the policies for password enforcement, and I know people hate password enforcement, but, you know, these machines are getting faster and faster and faster. So cracking becomes so much easier. You know, they're, they're taking billions of attempts per second uh, at your password. So, you know, very strange. But the implementation of these passwords weren't done very well e- either. You know, the sysadmins did not enforce a password age limit, you know, so you could have a password set for years and it wouldn't go out. They only used single factor authentication. There was no NMFA on 89% of the high value asset accounts. Wow. This is insane. And, and that's what I'm seeing, right? These numbers are not. Um, so unusual to me. So, you know, I, I don't want folks to think that the government is just completely, um, you know, running amok here. Uh, these are the kind of numbers I'm seeing on engagements when I'm doing a, a you know, a password audit, when I'm breaking into a domain, a domain admin account and I'm leveraging, you know, uh, my privileges and getting access to, you know, NTLM hashes on the network. Um, you know, I'm going through the process of auditing these passwords using the same methodology, using breach password lists, from weekpass.org or similar, um, and now all of a sudden you're you're getting 18, 19, 25 percent of, of successful cracks in a matter of you know an hour, and that's all it really takes. Especially if you're a bad actor and you're trying to move laterally, now you have fifteen to twenty thousand accounts to move around with. Two hundred eighty-eight accounts with elevated privilege. That's insane, Hector. That's that's you know you're, you're giving an attack vector that's just just too broad. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at it, if you like, if you look at it this way. That's 288 separate different attack paths to privilege escalation, right? Even if you were to rotate, you know, 99% of those accounts, you still have one lingering account that the password cannot be changed for whatever reason that all of a sudden becomes a back door or a front door for an adversary. So it's, it's, it's crazy stuff, but you know what? I'm not that surprised. I think this is why companies like, uh, uh, you know, some of the main vendors, some of the big companies out there are really trying to to phase out passwords and come up with different ideas uh, for authentication and authorization. So they also listed that there was nearly 6,000 um, uh, inactive accounts that were not disabled, just like the OPM hack that I was victimized through. Uh, are you seeing numbers that broad uh, in your engagement, 6,000 of the uh, 85,000? Absolutely. This is one of those things where um, this is one of those those, those little little tidbits of information that um, that I like to highlight in my reports, because if you look at this, if at, at this, at the results for this engagement that uh, that the government did on, on that network there, I mean, that, that's six thousand backdoor entries. Right. You have accounts that are not being disabled. They're there for who knows how long. And all it takes is for one bad actor to find one credential that they found in a in a, in, in a database from 2018 uh, that still works to this day to log in. And if you're looking at the fact that 89 percent of high asset uh, high value asset accounts do not have do not have MFA enabled, um, so you're just walking in at that point. I would say the 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 biggest takeaway for me here 
is that the numbers align with what I'm seeing in non-government organizations. It's a pattern. It's a problem that we kind of need to address as a community. So what's the solution? Do you have one? I mean, that's hard. So I want to go back to a question you asked me. How do you deal with this? Uh, How do you enforce a password requirement that does not allow users to use breach credentials? And the reason why I told you that, hey, that sounds like an easy question, but but has a super complex answer um, is because there is no real way to kind of plug in breach word lists into Active Directory without using some sort of external tool or external plugin, right? Maybe now, maybe in 2023, maybe there's something I missed, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago that folks were creating plugins using KY Anonymous, which is a technique, to hash a portion of the NTLM hash or a password hash and then compare it to uh, a portion of or, or a breach word list uh, without actually transferring the user's password across the wire, but it would still require some sort of third-party service, uh, and that's not a good thing, right? I mean, you know, even even if you trust the KY anonymous concept, and and you know, partial passwords or partial hashes are being transmitted only, it still could be problematic for an organization or a government agency that you know does not want to leak internal information externally. Um, so, what can we do at this point? I could give you recommendations, right? I could say, well, instead of letting users generate their own passwords, maybe you should have um, some sort of uh, service that generates passwords for the users. It may be annoying for them, but it's probably going to be more cryptographically sound or rather more more sound on, on the entropy uh, rather than allowing users to kind of choose those passwords. I think that's a good first step. It's probably easier to implement than using some sort of uh, breach word lists uh, you know, uh, a search tool, right? That that kind of blocks someone from using a breach password. So, I mean, that's just, that's just one idea. Um, another one is to kind of figure out a way to 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 limit the exposure of external authentication onto the internal network. There's SSOs and single sign-ons, and there's a whole bunch of different things in place. You know, now you have companies coming out with zero trust mechanisms that would allow or kind of avoid um, such an authentication to take place. There's a lot of different angles you can go. It, it's kind of hard to give any organization one simple solution because uh, it may not fit for them, right? There's no universal gotcha for this, for this problem. I think we'd all be billionaires. Or you and I would be billionaires if there was a, an out-of-the-box solution for all this stuff. But <laughs> Oh, yeah. It was great nerding out with you again. Uh, another good episode of Hacker in the Fed. I appreciate everybody listening. Uh, new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate that. And listeners, if you want to reach out to Hector and I, Reach us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Getting a lot of good emails, Hector. We're going to have to have another episode soon of just nothing but user questions. Um, guys, we really appreciate it. The, the show is really, really growing. We're getting a lot of great feedback. You know, the more Hector and I hear from you, uh, you know, the more enthusiasm we're going to have towards the show, the more effort we're going to put in. Uh, because, you know, when you guys really like the show, that we feed off that. So we really appreciate the feedback. Feel, st- feel free to reach out to us again. It's at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Oh, yeah, please do. Those questions are great. And I'll be honest with you, uh, Chris and the audience. Um, they're, they're highly motivating. You know, I mean, I know you and I started this project, uh, this podcast as as like a cool project for something for for you and I to work with, uh, work on together. But these questions that have come in have really been inspiring. And a big shout out to those that actually take the effort of sending them in. 
Yeah, a lot of people loving our music too. So uh, big shout out to Phineas for for coming up with that. Phineas is our editor and he, he picks all the music. So big shout out to him. Hector, great talking to you. Likewise, my friend. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.